0: Okay, so this, uh, this summer before my first year of college, I decided I would work at a summer camp. And so it wasn't just any summer camp. This was a young life camp. Have any of you been to a young life camp? Uh, maybe you know about young life camps. Uh, they're, they tend to be life-changing. Uh, we have many friends who met Jesus at these camps. So as a super young Christian, I'm about 18 years old. I drive to the Shenandoah Valley in Virginia to work at Rockbridge, one of 32 Young Life camps. Here's a picture of it right now. That's not Nehemiah's Jerusalem. No, that's, that's Rockbridge. Uh, and, I, I, and I'm excited to serve as I drive up. And I, uh, See, I've signed up for what they call Work Crew. Okay. what is work crew? It's where high schoolers come from across the nation to give an entire month of their summer to serve young life camps and to serve, more importantly, the campers to host, to help the camp host uh, thousands of campers in that given summer. So now when you show up for work crew, the first thing that they do is they give you an assignment. And this is a big deal, right, because this is what you are going to be doing day in and day out for an entire month of your life. It's a big deal and everybody knows that some assignments are way better than others when it comes to these camps uh, so my leader comes up to me and says joe you are a table surfer now this was the best possible news it absolutely was the best possible. news because servers at Young Life Camps are rock stars. They are the rock stars. Here's why. Because they serve breakfast, lunch, and dinner to the same tables. And therefore, the same campers. And therefore, those campers, because they're having the best week of their life, they, 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 they look at you with sort of like, um, they have magical thinking. You know, they think you're cooler than you are. And, and they, they look at you, and, and it's your job as a table server to make Christianity cool. It's your job. And they have nicknames for you. And you just are the this rock star, and you walk around and people say hi to you. It was the best possible news. And then I show up for training the next morning, excited, dressed as cool as I could be, you know, like I'm about to climb K2, which is how young life was dressed. And, and my leader comes to me and says, Joe, we've moved you. You're on housekeeping crew. Right. Okay, so if there's a job that is polar opposite to serving tables, it's housekeeping. I'm not kidding. If, if, if the table server's job is to be noticed, it's the housekeeping job to stay unnoticed. We secretly clean cabins every day when they're out having fun. We fold their toilet paper into nice corners. We sift the smoker's pit where high schoolers who smoke leave their cigarettes. If servers are noticed and and adored, housekeepers are uh, essentially unnoticed and and harassed. Is the word I'll use. <laughs> Here's why. Uh, once my cabin found out that I was that there was even a secret housekeeper, they just found out. And they just started to, uh, they started to start playing a game called Don't Flush the Toil- Toilet All Day. It was this fun new game that they found out that they could play. And they always <laughs> found out the next morning that it was cleaned and cleared. And, they, and it was like magical because who on earth is cleaning this, this this thing with like apples and bananas and all the food we didn't eat this morning and everything else, right? So this was the game they would play. And we would patiently... Just kind of clean it up. And that's where I have my skills to this day, actually, when it comes to that. I won't won't give you detail. I know that's against the rules of preaching. Here's the truth. Campers idolized table servers. They terrorized housekeepers. And I went from a table server to a housekeeper in less than 24 hours, and I hated it. I didn't like it. I didn't like it. I wanted the fun job. As a young Christian, I knew that Jesus saved me. I knew Jesus loved me, but I wasn't ready to stoop for Him. And the truth is, not much has changed in my life. Uh, I want to be noticed. I like attention. If I'm totally honest, when I imagined myself as a pastor, I felt God calling me to pastoral ministry. When I imagined myself as a pastor, the mental images that I had had more in common with rock star than shepherd. Well, people will be helped by you, Joe. People will be impressed by you, Joe. I want attention, and if I'm not laying down before the foot of the cross every morning, in fact, probably three or four times a day, I just want people to be impressed by me. All day, every day. That's like my MO. I'm reading a book right now about narcissistic personality disorder, as one does. And um, it's called, Why Is It Always About You? And it lists seven deadly sins of narcissism. I'll just say them quickly. The first is shamelessness. So this is when we bypass sort of the junk that's inside of us, the stuff that we don't like to face, and we bypass it by making everything about us. It's sort of our internal distraction mechanism. Have you no shame? And we say, yeah, we have a ton of shame. I just don't want to look at it or deal with it. Therefore, I am going to be shameless. Another aspect of narcissism is magical thinking. It's when we create distortions and illusions. And we live in these distorted and, and illusory worlds that we create. Why? To avoid humbling experiences. Another aspect is, is this. Uh, arrogance. When we pretend we're superior to others to avoid the feelings of shame and whatever else we're carrying inside of us. Envy. Envy. Okay, envy. Envy is an aspect of narcissism too. Envy is the fuel of narcissism. Envy is the fuel. Because it fuels our need to feel superior. Entitlement is when we keep living as two-year-olds, even though we're adults. Exploitation is when we uh, don't even consider another person's world. We don't enter into it. How could we? It doesn't exist. bad boundaries. This is when we ignore other people's fences and and closed doors. And we certainly don't have them for ourselves. So it reminds me of plenty of people as I'm reading this. I'm like, yeah, this reminds me of a lot of people I've encountered in my life. But if I'm honest, it exposes me too. Each one of those things I could just write a book about as I see it played out in my own life. A heart is so desperately turned on itself. This is from Caravaggio. This picture here. And it's depicting narcissists. It's a myth. It's a Greek myth. The myth of narcissists. But that so captures a day in my life. How about you? We're so into ourselves that we don't notice anything else or anybody else around us. The most sobering quote from this book, her name is Sandy Hotchkiss. She says this, There is nothing new about narcissism. What is troubling about contemporary culture is the extent to which these personality flaws have received widespread stamp of approval. Isn't that crazy? Narcissism is not just tolerated in our day and age. It is glorified. It is glorified. So I was thinking about it. It's, uh, it's actually glorified in the church, too. I mean, we can do this. Uh, we elevate leaders who bypass their unacknowledged junk uh, and who, through ministry achievement, can kind of ignore their own inherent selfishness. I mean, there, there are leaders that we glorify who are not empowered by the Holy Spirit, but who are essentially empowered by raw envy. You kind of just look around and you're like, well, they're, they're killing it for God. I want to kill it for God. All right, let's do this. Let's do this. Let's do this. And we can just be fueled by raw envy. And boundaries, boundaries. Church is too often the place where you learn bad boundaries. You unlearn good boundaries and you learn bad boundaries as soon as you join a church. That's how it seems to be. If we're not careful. Now, why am I saying all this? And what does it have to do with this chapter that we just heard read aloud? Well, it's this we read and we heard a list of names of people who banded together to do the Lord's calling. That's what we just heard. We just heard a very kind of unspectacular but group effort to do God's call. But I wonder if you noticed the Tekoaite nobles in verse 5. Just take a look at your Bibles and take a quicker look, a closer look. The Tekoaite nobles in verse 5. They, according to Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, refused to get their hands dirty with such work. And the actual Hebrew word there is they didn't bend their neck. Which is why your Bible says they didn't stoop to serve their Lord. This ancient book is expertly written. And so verse 5 is no accident. It is meant to stick out. It is designed to stick out. And what do we do? What do most of us do when we read verse 5? We scoff, don't we? We say, huh, the Tekoite nobles. <laughs> it's easy to scoff, especially when you notice other nobles in this text working hard. So if you look at verse 9 quickly, and verse 12, you'll see there's other nobles they're working so it has nothing to do with nobility in that era or especially when you notice and i pointed this out when i was reading that the techoite citizens were not just working in verse 5 but they were also working in verse 27 they were working in two different locations they were doing double shift and so we look at that we see that we encounter that and we say oh man i'm so glad i'm not a techoite That's just what we do. It tends to be what we do when we read the Gospels and we see the Pharisees doing their thing. We're like, man, I'm so glad I am not like that. And see, here's why God is so subversive. He takes his word and he if we're if we're honest for just a second, if the Holy Spirit gives us honesty before him for just a second, we will realize that verse five is a mirror and it catches our eye, not because we scoff at it. It catches our eye because it is us. We are. The Techoite nobles. We are. And God wants us to be freed from that. So, how do we gladly stoop? That's the question we'll briefly consider this morning. How do we gladly stoop? How do we bend our neck, as the text puts it, bend our whole bodies in service of God and of others? How do we, instead of narcissists, like we saw in that picture, not bend to look at our own reflection, our own life, our own navel, and instead we bend at the feet of those God has placed in our life? We bend at the foot of the cross in worship. How are our lives so how could our lives be so enlarged that we find stooping beautiful? <clears throat> That's the question. And I see some hints. I see some things in this very text that could help us answer that question. And the first is this. We have to realize and we have to sort of embrace and we have to actually experience in our heart the truth. That God saves a people for himself to become stupors, servants, God saves us to stoop. The direct purpose of our salvation is to glorify God and to serve others. We are saved to first mission. Okay, So this stooping takes a few different postures. The first is that of mission. All the family names that we just read aloud, God has called His own. Remember, And we need to look back at Genesis 12, verses 1 and 2, where God tells Abraham and his family that will follow after him, including everybody named on this chapter, all those names. Uh, this is what their calling was. He says that you will be blessed in order to be a blessing. This has been called the Maseo I'll put it up there for you. Uh, This is Latin for the mission of God. And this phrase captures the truth that we are not just saved, period, but that we are saved to be on God's mission. God's mission. Mission of God. God's mission. Not our mission. God's mission. We are saved and then brought into a bigger mission. So this is why in verse 1 of the chapter we just read, the family, uh, uh, the, the priest's, consecrated the, the effort did you notice that in verse 1 they consecrated it and then they set its doors consecration means dedicate to a sacred purpose to consecrate your life is to say God I'm on your mission and that's, what, that's why they're building. They're on mission to bless the nations. And if you don't believe that, the reason they're building is to bless the nations. Consider Jesus, one of the first things He does when He comes to Jerusalem. Do you remember what He did? Do you remember? He sort of like destroys the temple. He tears it up. He creates a scene. Why? Why? Well, in part because they were turning the Gentile court, which is where the nations. It's where they encountered the worship of God. And they turned that Gentile court into a marketplace, thus holding out the very purpose of God's people, which is to bless the nations. And Jesus is like, you've made this the exact opposite. It is meant to be a blessing to the world. We are on mission to bless others with the blessing that we have been given. We're also saved. And this is the other stooping posture that we have is that of vocation. So mission and now vocation, vocation. The word vocation comes from the word vocare, which means to call. To call. So you call your kids or you call someone, you call them, you bring them into your presence. When God saves you, He then gives you a vocara, He gives you a vocation, He gives you a calling. And so each of these people that we read about had a unique calling. There were priests. I'll just, if you want to look at the text, and I'll just, I'll just give you some verse numbers that you can just kind of look at as I say this, I would encourage that. So there are priests in, in verse 1, in verse 21, in verse 28. There are temple servants in verse 26. There are Levites in verse 17. There are district officers in verse 9, 12, 15, 16, and 17. There are merchants, as we read in the very last verse. There are goldsmiths, verse 8. There are perfumers, verse 8. Nearly every vocation in this text is being used by God. And lastly, when we are saved, we're not only given mission, we're not only given vocation, but we are given gifts. We're given gifts, not for you, but for other people. Uh, Some people in this chapter are good at admin. Some people are good at, at crafting things. Others are good in the marketplace, but they are all bringing their unique gifts to this project to this project. And when a church is using their gifts, two things are going to happen. It's really amazing. When a church uses their gifts, two things happen. Diversity happens, a celebration of diversity. As as one author put it many decades ago, there are no little people in a church that has a theology of gifts. Because everybody needs everybody's gifts. So there'll be diversity celebrated. Uh, The other thing that will happen is unity. Because we're all given these gifts by Jesus. So there's a profound unity. Here's a prayer that I read recently that gets to the heart of this. Cleanse me from the pressures, illusions, and pretenses that confront me today. Listen. So that my life may serve as a gift to those around me. That's a good prayer to pray because you're suddenly thinking, how am I and how have I been gifted to be a gift to others around me? Um, one Christmas, I'll just tell you a quick story. I got, uh, while well, our family got... An iPad. And this is when iPads were brand new. They were the cool thing. They still are cool, I suppose. Uh, but we got an iPad from uh, my father in law. And, and all of my in laws got one. And it was like the big gift. Everybody was excited. And then one Christmas, I remember also, I got a tool set from my father in law. I got a tool set from my father in law. Just let that sink in. Um, okay? <laughs> and I didn't like the gift. I liked it in theory. I'm like, this will be useful, I'm sure. I don't know how to use these tools, but they'll be useful, I'm sure. But the point is, I didn't like it because in Christmas I had this consumer mindset. What is in it for me? And my father-in-law sort of like broke that illusion down by giving me a tool set saying, you exist for others, just to remind you. Just to remind you. Romans 12, Paul would tell us that spiritual gifts are like tools to build the church. We are not building a wall. We are building a church with spiritual stones. And the way that we build is with spiritual tools, i.e. spiritual gifts. And all of us were given gifts, whether they're serving gifts, whether they're leading gifts, whether they're speaking gifts, whether they're behind the scenes gifts. All of us are given gifts and no list is exhaustive to to build. And so what that means is if you're not using your gift, if you don't know what your gifts are then other people are not being built. Do you see? We need, I need your gifts, just as you need my gifts. So God's salvation creates a church of stupors. People who gladly bend their lives for the sake of others. So that's the first truth we need to really let sink in. You see, we really need to embrace the reality that our very salvation is not a selfish salvation. The very salvation that we have and that we've been given in Jesus is the only power, I'm telling you, it's the only power to serve others. We are saved to stoop, okay? We're saved to stoop. So let me just give you a few ideas of what that could look like in your life. Let me just put it in this phrase. Uh, think about being a builder at church and not a consumer. That'd be the first thing I challenge you with. As you walk through these front doors, think in your mind, all right, I'm here to build. I'm not here to take. I'm here to build. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 tells us, and I'll just put it up behind me so you can read along. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherd and teachers or the shepherd teachers... Why? Why, you know, why did Jesus give uh, the church these people to equip the saints, that's y'all, for the work of ministry? Translation, for building up the body of Christ. So I think too many of us sometimes come into church and we think, I'm coming in here to to get a consumer good. I'm getting a a spiritual consumer good. And the reality is, actually the beauty is, though it may be challenging, we're here to build. We're here to build. You are saved to be a builder. My job as a pastor, according to this verse, is to help unleash you. Not to be your guru, but to help unleash you. In this building project. And so here's a good way of doing this. And I learned this uh, a few years ago. At the end of your Sunday, or on your drive home this morning, ask not, What did I get out of church this morning? And maybe your first, you can ask that question, that's fine, but maybe the first question we should all ask is, How did I build today at church? How did I bless somebody at church today? How did I come alongside somebody at church today? What is it that I did? How did I use my gifts at church today? And ask that question and celebrate that answer. And then I think the second question, what did I get out of it? I think, I think that will solve itself. I think that will solve itself. So that's the first thing is God saves stupors. He saves. His whole salvation is meant to create a people that stoop. And second and finally... We have to understand, and this is, I think, even more important, that God saves his people by stooping. God not only saves stupors, he saves by stooping. It's his method, it's his character. It's amazing. Think about it. God stooped in Artaxerxes, Jerusalem. This is is the world we're in. We're in the Persian Empire. And God stoops in the Persian Empire uh, when he says, Hey, people, my people, go back. I'm going to turn Cyrus's heart. Go back and build my house because I want to dwell with you. That's grace. That's him stooping. The God of the universe whose people are stiff-necked and rebellious. He does not give up on, and instead draws near to them. And so the very book of Nehemiah is proof of God's stooping love. That's one. Number two, how does God stoop in Jesus' Jerusalem? Let alone the Persian Empire. Think Roman Empire. When Jesus comes onto the scene, He is God. Jesus is God. Paul says in Philippians 2, though He was God, He did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Listen to this. Instead, Jesus gave up His divine privileges. He gave them up, and He took the humble position of a slave, a stupor, and was born as a human being. And when He appeared in human form, He went lower still. He humbled Himself in obedience to God, and He died a criminal's death on the cross. God stoops In Jesus. That's how he saved us. And think about it today, God continues to stoop to build this church. Yeah, we've been given tools. Yeah, we have to build. But there's a truth, a fundamental bedrock truth that goes underneath all of this, and it's this Jesus says in Matthew, I will build my church. Simple sentence, let's not complicate it. Jesus says, I will build my church. Here's a quote from Ed Stetzer. He says, The risen Christ plants churches. He builds them by changing hearts. And he has been working in your city. Catch this. Long before you got there. Did you know that? So it's his church. And we can try to do it all in our own strength. But only God can build a church through his son, Jesus. Only God can do that. He is building and stooping even as we exist. Now, as I think back to those Young Life work crew days, I think, if I'm honest, the reason I didn't like the housekeeping job at camp is because I really didn't see, I really didn't see God stooping for me. I think that's because I was young. I don't think I'd been a uh, sort of, uh, I don't think I've bled yet as a Christian. For me, in my story, life was pretty cush up until that camp. And so, I didn't see a God who stooped. Think about that. I saw a God who was maybe impressed with me and thought to bring me on his team because I had a lot to offer. I think that was my M.O. when I was 18 years old. But then I lived life a little bit. And as you all know, life gets complex. Life gets really hard. And you get broken down and the mistakes you make and the rebellions you engage in, you start to become more and more astonished that God meets you there. If you are in a place of the deepest depths, I stand on firmer ground saying to you that God is nearer to you now than ever before in your life. Because I'm standing on the word of God. He draws near to the brokenhearted. So, he stoops. That's how he rescues. Let me just tell you, you will start to see beauty and obscurity the more you encounter His stooping love. Um, You will stoop. Let me say it this way. To the extent you see Jesus stoop. In your life. If you don't know deeply the God. Who stoops in Jesus. You will never be a gift to others. You will only take from others. And here's a benediction. May you know deeply. The God who stoops. In your life. So that you would not just bend your neck, you would bend your whole self before him in worship and before others in service. Lord, we come to you now and we ask that this would happen in our midst, that we would become a church. I I see it already. You have worked in all of our lives in this way. But boy, we are are just um, in need of such work. So Holy Spirit, would you give us the heart of Jesus as we stoop on mission? And it's in his name we pray. Amen.